Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really useful for us to keep behaving, to keep performing. Evolutionarily speaking, if we uh, develop a tendency to sit down and, and stop doing things when things got a little bit difficult or when things are too variable in our environments, well, that's when we die. You start, it's a huge amount of plasticity and change, so you should have no excuse for putting up with the brain uh, doing what you don't want it to do or stuck in some way or injured or they have some you know stuck resource like anxiety or ADHD. You should really decide that you can figure out how to move beyond that because shift happens. These things are changing all the time. Body, mind, empowerment. Get stronger, faster, smarter, quicker, friendlier, more helpful, more driven. Everything the body needs. Control your mind. Welcome to the Body Mind Empowerment Podcast. I'm your host, Seamland, and our guest today is Dr. Andrew Hill. Dr. Hill is a cognitive neuroscientist, speaker, and founder of the Peak Brain Institute. He's one of the leading neurofeedback practitioners in the world, and he helps people improve their cognitive performance and brain health. Dr. Hill, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Sim. Nice to be here. Yeah, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that we have still have the opportunity to do like a podcast across the world, although we've uh, already met face-to-face uh, -face a few times already, so it's, it's, uh, it's fortunate. That's right. We're, we're itinerant global biohackers by, by trade, both of us. So. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Uh, how did you get into the field of neuroscience? Mm, so uh, I, uh, in my under undergraduate, which was a couple decades ago now, I studied um, psychology and quickly got into the more biological end of it. I was sort of always interested in, you know, taking things apart and tinkering and I had sort of a tech background at the time when technology was starting to become a little more accessible. Um, and uh, in getting deeper into this aspect of neuroscience, I, I for many years, been working inpatient uh, psychiatric work and crisis work and uh, work with um, uh, people with multiple disabilities like uh, uh, language, cognitive disabilities, long-term, you know, residential facilities and things. And in many of these instances, I saw that there wasn't much change. You know, people don't really change a huge amount when you have profound mental retardation and cerebral palsy and language deficits from, you know, for significant autism or something, or brain injuries. These things were really slow changing, as well as the more psychiatric stuff. I saw a lot of evolving door uh, things in psychiatric hospitals where people came in for a few days get sent away with meds that might or might not be working too soon to tell, and then would usually come back and uh, at a large cost to them, their lives, the system, the, the healthcare system, you know, the, the individuals providing uh, healthcare would get a little burnt out in that sort of inpatient environment, which was very uh, grinding. So um, I was working in those environments, and I had an undergraduate degree in psychology with a focus in neuroscience. So I got into the bio a little bit, and then uh, I got injured. I blew out a couple discs in my back and couldn't... Um, do the work that I've been doing. So for a little while, I did case management work and worked more on the systems around people's mental health and performance and things like that. And uh, eventually, I ended up in neurofeedback working with populations of people with developmental issues, ADHD, autism, lots of other things, and so started to see something very, very different uh, from what I'd seen in traditional, if you will, mental health care. I was seeing change. I was seeing people uh, develop language and eye contact and drop some you know, fixations or sensory issues sometimes in autism, and I was seeing uh, ADHD kinds of things go away sometimes in a matter of weeks and months. It was very profound compared to that backdrop of glacial change, which I had seen historically. I mean, I, I spent a year once teaching a young man to use a fork who was about maybe 30 years old and had some cognitive difficulties and was blind. 
and he spent a year working on fork so he, so he could use a fork and, and, and then, you know, maybe have a little more fun out in public and, and wasn't, you know, looked at oddly. But it was a year of, of grinding learning to cause small change, just in behavioral stuff. And then in, in neurofeedback, I saw sometimes uh, just massive shift in a matter of weeks, uh, really big resources. Hmm. So that caught my attention. And this was about, I don't know, more than 15 years ago, uh, 18 or something. And, and at that time, uh, neurofeedback... Uh, wasn't a new field, EEG, wasn't a new field uh, in terms of training the EEG. Um, it was discovered in the, the um, uh, 60s, basically, at the sort of simultaneously human conditioning by Dr. Barry Sturman and then uh, Joe Camilla, and so both in California. Um, and uh, so it was known, it was, it was out there, but it wasn't a very big piece of it. And I got involved with neurofeedback and saw all this change. And at the time, there were still sort of like big schools of thought of neurofeedback about oh, it must work this way, here's a special tool that works for everything, or here's, here's the way you approach it, and very divergent. It still is that way to some extent, but very divergent ideas about what the actual underlying mechanisms, technology, how you assess, what, is, uh, what, the, what the best techniques are. And the problem I had with that um, as a critical thinker was, in spite of the sort of cognitive dissonance and the, the conflict in the ideas that all these different schools of thought, three or four of them, had, in neurofeedback, all of the schools of thought were getting really good results. Significantly better than what I had seen in inpatient, outpatient, significantly better than the average, you know, medication for things like sleep or attention or stress mm -hmm. uh, or, or, you know, other more significant things. It was pretty profound seizure. I mean, the average direction of seizure based on a 2002 paper by Dr. Sturman is something like more than 30% average, 5% of people have complete control of seizures for, you know, more than a year afterwards. Yeah. Um, it's, it's pretty profound uh, impact on the brain, and it's closer to exercise than this medicine or psychology in a lot of ways. Hmm. Um, and yeah, so I've seen all this stuff happen, I, and got you know, yeah. yeah. Yeah, can you like maybe give like a brief uh, overview of what is neurofeedback as well? Like, what's the term and how does it work? So to say, people? sure. Yeah. So, so neurofeedback, the way that I'm talking about it, is really driven by um, looking at brain waves, looking at EEG. You can also do it looking at blood flow. Um, in both of these cases, you're looking at parameters in the brain that are changing all the time. So right now, talking to you, seeing you have uh, hopefully uh, some amount of theta brain waves, which is reduced, meaning you're paying attention to me a little bit, you're focused, you're not distractible. Uh, hopefully I'm keeping your attention, uh, you know, putting the time and, and everything else on the content. But um, uh, the, the ratio, for instance, of theta to beta brain waves, uh, theta to distractible, brainwave in some way, but it's also receptive attention and memory and a lot of very sort of um, awareness processes. Creativity is in a theta frequency for many people with the activation of theta. Um, and then a beta frequency is a more a co uh, cognitive or thinky frequency where you focus. And the faster the beta frequency is, the more you're focusing or maybe even stressed in your, or busy in your mind. Mm. And with a technique called brain mapping or quantitative EEG, QEEG, you can look at the amounts, the connectivity patterns, the likely um, set of resting brain waves that somebody produces. And if, you know, we're all very quite you know, different, of course, but um, if you look at things from a pretty 10,000 foot view level, the, the um, uh, average amount of theta, alpha, beta, delta, the connectivity patterns, the general things your brain does and you open and close your eyes, and you look at thousands of people, there are some trends that tend to appear. So if I look at you compared to the average person your age, we would see some typical things and some unusual things. Now, where things are really unusual, it may predict a sort of bottleneck in a resource or unusual pattern or maybe small damage or injury. 
And most of the things in brain mapping um, are not diagnostically valid. We're not saying, oh, this is true. It's more like, oh, hey, this pattern often or sometimes means this. And like, no matter this pattern, I'm guessing that you're experiencing X, Y, or Z. And if the person then says, oh, yeah, that sounds like what I'm experiencing, we then believe, we validate the hypothesis with their experience. So it's not a diagnostic, it's more of a hypothesis generator. There are some of the discriminants or the, the biomarkers or endophenotypes in the data that are rising to the level of diagnostic validity, and many of those include um, uh, executive function markers, like the ADHD sort of cluster is a largely, in classic ADHD, is an excess ratio, high ratio of theta to beta. So more than about two in adults of the theta to beta ratio at the vertex, uh, the head can blindly sort people into ADHD and non-ADHD buckets pretty reliably. Across different studies, it's between 84 and about 95% accuracy. So it's a pretty you know, reliable way to look at, hey, there's an executive function different from typical that usually comes along with um, a low inhibitory tone. Some, that means often distractibility, poor working memory, or problem sustaining focus or organizing uh, behavior, which you know, we call ADHD when laid against the uh, demands of a current structured cubicle, you know, sort of heads down, more gatherer. Uh, uh, society, when you're this sort of hunter, if you will, when you have this novelty-seeking, pattern-matching, the low inhibition has a reason. I mean, ADHD, I hate the, 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 the deficit or the disorder perspective on it because humans are variable and we need this perspective of noticing all the things, yeah. even if we can't only you know, sit and focus on one thing. And we need the ability to be abstract and to think of novelty and to notice uh, the, the harder spot berry and a tiger you know, perching just out of sight or anticipate possibility. Um, and these are uh, features that are at the other end of sustained focus and heads down, distraction-free vigilance and effort. Uh, most humans have pretty good ability to, to transition between ends of that spectrum, largely, the modes of those resources. People with ADHD typically get stuck a little more towards one end of it, which is often a superpower, like if you're playing video games or surfing or in a fight or, you know, mm. stalking through the jungle looking for tigers and berries. Um, then it'd be pretty good because yeah. the high stimulus and high novelty is going to require that receptive attention of high theta. But if you're sitting in a classroom or a boardroom without stimulus, the high theta generally stuck sort of brain gets distractible and impulsive and fidgety and looks for input uh, to sort of mm. stimulate what you do to look at distracted or daydream. And that has other behavioral consequences usually like, you know, having some protection around the moment you're in because it's hard to manage your resources. So you procrastinate and put off long tasks and, have a hard time breaking things down that are a little bit larger instead of the uh, momentary reward or uh, feedback on what you're doing. So it produces some challenges against modern uh, life. So in neurofeedback, if you're like, oh, I'm having some difficulty focusing, getting distracted, powering through my dissertation, hitting that medical school exam, whatever it is, um, even if it's not ADHD, we, would, we don't treat the brain in a medical or psychological model uh, when doing neurofeedback. Uh, certainly, we don't have peak brain, which is my company. I, I would argue that most people, there's about maybe 10,000 people worldwide that, that are neurofeedback practitioners, and most of them are sort of clinician uh, perspectives where a medical or psychological model, they tend to work on the brain as if it has this um, uh, psychological or medical perspective and how they uh, engage with you in the system of work. It's what's wrong with you. It's where things are awry. It's working on you or to you. Um, and I really feel that neurofeedback is better approach more like personal training. So we look at your, your brain maps and say, hey, look, your, your theta-beta ratio is a couple standard deviations away from average. And I don't care why you aren't average. I mean, my goal is to say, why aren't you typical? Let's make you average. 
My goal is to say, oh, hey, these ways in which your brain is most unusual suggest a bottleneck here and there. Is this true? And does it sound valid? And can we identify that bottleneck? A, is it valid? And B, do you want to work on it? Is it important to you? Is it something you care about and want to, want to push a resource on? So it really is a biohacker's sort of functional neuroscience approach where you go after the, the patterns and say, you know, these things aren't especially well perfectly understood, but we know some ranges, we know some likelihoods, we know some tendencies. And I see some things in your brain that, you know, if you ease this resource and push this one up, performance will change. And then you go after it by exercising the brain through neurofeedback or biofeedback on the EEG or the uh, blood flow by measuring the things that are changing moment to moment. And whenever they happen on their own, typically to change in the right direction, we sort of applaud the brain with better audio and visual uh, input. So we sort of make a spaceship fly faster, music swells in volume, cars hit more zombies, Something happens where the brain's like, hey, more stuff. Whenever it happens to move, like beta drops, beta rises, brain's like, ooh, interesting things. And then the brain moves in the wrong direction, and the spaceship stalls, the car stops, the music goes away, and the brain sort of goes, hey, hey, wait a minute, I was watching that. That was me. That was interesting. And then it happens on its own to change in the right direction, and the software goes, yeah, good job, brain. And the brain goes, wait, wait, I'm controlling that. And the mind doesn't. I'm being very specific here because it's not a voluntary perspective. You can't control the spaceship or make the music stop and start, really. Um, it's more letting things get applauded that are already happening or not mm -hmm. applauded. So it's somewhere between a mirror and an exercise being held up to the brain. Mm -hmm. And the trick here is that we move the goalposts every few seconds. And so it's adaptive. So as you drop your theta amount and get a little applause for it, we will move the threshold, the goalposts, so that a few seconds later, you know, you'll get applauded when you move it a little further. So quickly, the brain figures out, hey, wait a minute, drops in theta are getting more input. I like, I like input. I like stuff. Mm -hmm. And it does a little more of that in the session. It starts to play with it itself. You may or may not experience much in the session. Usually a few sessions in, like three or four, people start to go, hey, wait a minute, I'm feeling something shift the touch when I do this. And it's pretty subtle initially. And then there's a sort of unfolding effect like exercise where you start to feel it for a day, day and a half after you do it, very subtly, if your sleep, stress, and whatever resource you're working on, hopefully, shifts a little bit, and you report back to your trainer and say, hey, look, I think my onset of sleep is a little deep, is a little better, better maintenance, a little more sharp, I'm feeling you know, crisp, my ADHD was a little more under control, whatever it is, and you relay back subjective experiences periodically. We at Peak Brain train you three times a week. We do about three months of that to make a big chunk of change, if you will, in the brain. So. We remap the brain and the brain mapping the QEEGs. We assess attention on CPT, continuous performance tasks. Every 20 sessions or so of neurofeedback, we typically do a 40-session program, which is like three months. And we can often get a couple standard deviations of change for you in performance in that time frame, especially if you have some big bottlenecks or deficits. You come in with an executive function, sleep, stress, mood, something. Problem, and it's really obvious, and it changes typically pretty easily. Um, other people will just kind of chip away at things or work counter to aging or go after things that are more uh, pure peak performance like um, creativity. There's some protocols for creativity or protocols for like immune boosting or other kinds of features that are more uh, voluntary. So it's not exactly like walking into a gym and saying, I want abs and then you know, structuring a program. But it's almost like that if we had to sort of work together to figure out what you meant by abs mm -hmm. a little bit. And then structure some time and figure out how your brain, uh, how your abs actually are built and, and tune them for a while. Right. Yeah, it is, it is kind of funny or it's, it's very fascinating how, how the brain goes through these different uh, brain waves or uh, th during the day all the time. Like I mentioned a few of them, like mm. uh, the beta waves, delta waves and theta waves and such. 
and they all have like a different effect on the person's mood and the person's behavior and like all of these things uh, you also kind of pointed out that you know ADHD isn't necessarily a bad thing it's simply like a matter mm. of context and sometimes you want to have more uh, attention and more focus and such and on the other hand at other times you want to be more relaxed and more in the alpha alpha kind of state and with with neurofeedback yeah. with neurofeedback people can simply kind of condition their brain to experience certain states more often or to ch- or to teach themselves to become more mindful of these of these things and such so but but what what would be like the most common uh, issues people come to you know fix mm-hmm. neurofeedback in in your uh, experience yeah i mean uh, i would say about a third of my clients come with a fix in mind for a specific problem that they really want to address and about a third come from our peak performance and a third is sort of a mix of, you know, aging and peak performance and fixes and just, you know, people walk in saying, I don't know what I want, but make me better. That's, I, that's a little frustrating, but also kind of fun because you can look at their brain and say, oh, here's something that might be true for you. It's kind of a cold read, you know, on the brain activity. But most people come in, um, uh, I would say at least a third, maybe more like half, with some mix of the, of, of, of the big three. And that's an executive function or attention, stress, and sleep combination often. They often uh, come together in such that, if you have significant stress, your mind's really pushed. Uh, that often throws off your sleep onset or your sleep maintenance, meaning you can't let things go because you're, you're churning. That's a sleep onset difficulty. Or you're kind of chronically hypervigilant. That usually causes sleep maintenance. We aren't dipping into each cycle throughout the night where the sleep stages are uh, kind of ordered and architected to get you into different regulatory uh, modes all night long. And then um, so sleep stress and, 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 and attention things are often presented as different stuff where, you know, someone comes in and says, I'm experiencing a lot of uh, anxiety or a lot of sleep issues. And you look at your brain, you're like, well, yeah, I totally see why you're stressed. But look at this. It looks like you're also profoundly underrested. You know, which came first? So chicken and egg here, the sleep issue or the anxiety or some, you know, some attention problems. And my goal with um, brain mapping isn't to sort of look at your brain and go, oh, yes, you have ADHD or yes, you have some anxiety. It's to sort of drop one level below that and look at the resources, the physiology with you and say, hey, look, I see some inhibitory stuff, some lack of deep sleep, like delta waves I mentioned uh, at the beginning. Delta is a frequency that you make all the time, but you make a lot of it when you're in deep, slow wave sleep, deep sleep, dreamless sleep. Uh, So if you don't make a lot of deep sleep at night, then you kind of make it a little bit all day long. If I look at your delta and see it either excessive in amplitude or it's running too fast in frequency, it's running a little bit like a, a wakeful frequency, then I would predict you are browning out throughout the day or something. You're having some, some lack of deep sleep, lack of regulatory stuff. So you might come in and say, I'm having brain fog, I'm getting old, I'm 55 or 40 or whatever. And we look and say, hey, I'm, I'm seeing a pretty significant issue with your sleep. Oh yeah, I don't sleep great. But it may help you understand and tease apart some of the resources and why the bottlenecks about why you're limited. And again, getting to a diagnostic label or bucket is not a good idea and not my goal. Um, injuries are a good example of that. You might have some wear and tear on your brain. And about 50% of all injuries are silent. They produce no symptoms in your brain. Ten years later, they start to have an impact. If they're severe injuries that were silent initially, then ten years later, they're seizures. If they're mild injuries, ten years later, or significant injuries like concussions. Then a decade later, they're often a little bit of you know, residual fog, touch of you know, slowed processing. But those things also can produce disruptions in sleep architecture, which can then throw off stress response. And then you power through your day because you're so wiped out. So again, you see a lot of these different resources broadly and you get to kind of pick and choose what you want to go after and what's important to you to try to exercise until the resource is robust and 
In the case of something like ADHD, I would say that we're unsticking the resource from over here in the high theta, low beta state, and we're giving you control. So you can still do that. You can still go play video games for 47 hours without a break or surf or have, you know, crazy risky behavior like skydiving or, you know, big conflict to light up your brain. Go for it. That's what that mm -hmm. stuff does. That's why people with ADHD look for that high stimulus or train their parents to fight with them or anything else, you know, significant. But you can also unstick it and then shift into other modes uh, uh, more voluntarily, like you're using, you know, body resources, the same voluntary control. Yeah, I would imagine that stress and anxiety would be one of the biggest, you know, biggest issues people, modern people tend to deal with. And everyone is kind of mm. all wired up uh, constantly. And there are many distractions in the environment, you know, whether that be social media, you know, playing video games or, you know, other environmental toxins, all of those things, those things kind of make the person become too beta, too beta stimulated, stimulated, so to say, that they're always kind of wired up and they're stressed out constantly. And, you know, even, yeah. even, if they, even if they do think that they can relax or they, they, they could potentially sleep, then in reality, then their sleep quality actually tends to be quite, quite bad and they don't even know about it. Yeah, when humans are really good or really bad, I guess, at um, knowing uh, where we're, our resources are pinched or where our resources are limited. This is why we can't text and drive or drink and drive at the same time because we accommodate our input. So we grade this, the, um, the transduction of stimuli and adjust our perception of it to keep things roughly within a range of perceptibility, of invariance. So, you know, you and I have a different accent in, in spoken English slightly, not dramatically, but slightly, and I speak some vowel sounds differently than you do, and yet you understand, because you've learned to sort of map stimuli and interpret, and to some extent you have a, a, a specific stimulus, invariant representation of different speech sounds that's somewhere in your brain, in the same way your brain has a representation of the world, that just fills in information whenever, you know, you look away from stuff, or um, whenever your performance degrades. So if we're chronically sleep-deprived, the machinery we're sort of using to grade how alert we are becomes relative to that day or that week. And we really do adjust to keep ourselves feeling roughly okay. We adjust a lot of the, the, the more extreme stimuli and even the, the performance gauging that we're sort of engaged in. Yeah, you, you actually kind of start compensating for the so to say, you don't even notice that you are sleep deprived or you're tired. You, you think that it's like the normal and your brain actually, I would imagine that your brain gets used to it and the, the kind of fatigued state becomes mm. your new default state after a while if you're so exposed to it. Exactly. Often. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's really useful for us to keep behaving, to keep performing, right? If, if we, um, evolutionarily speaking, if we uh, develop a tendency to uh, sit down and, and stop doing things when things got a little bit difficult or when things are too variable in our environments, well, that's when we die. I mean, life is sort of the, the, the tension of oscillation, of, of ranging, change but it needs to sort of be within certain limits and it also needs to not be static so you need to have just enough change for life to exist and humans need humans have a wonderful ability uh, all living things and some non-living things have a wonderful ability to to, to react as a system and regulate some sort of stability or some sort of a middle point of a range and sort of use that ranging as a way to uh, create the stability of the system and we need to be able to, you know, come back to ground in our emotional stability, energy, mental status, um, even if we didn't get as much sleep, or even if we didn't eat for three days, or we had to, you know, trek across some African steps for nine, nine weeks with, you know, minimal water and, you know, who knows? I mean, I'm, I'm sort of making up scenarios, but 
we, we need to be able to perform, so of course we adjust. Otherwise, we would, you know, uh, have a problem. Yeah, a and, problem anyway. yeah and, the, and the problem is that people, uh, once they kind of get stuck into that cycle, then uh, they don't really readjust, so to say. They don't have the, like, the downtime. Right. They, they get so uh, overstressed. Damn it! How does the brain actually change uh, during that process, so to say? You, mm. we, we know that, you know, in the past, some people thought that, you know, the brain is unchangeable and it doesn't change after your, you know, first years of life. But we now actually know right. that the brain is plastic and it constantly changes itself according to the stimulus. That's right. Shift happens. This is a pretty constant uh, process. And it happens from, you know, of course, prenatally before birth uh, until pretty much the moment you die. Um, uh, I, I teach uh, undergraduates and I still find people coming in thinking that we don't make new brain cells. And as you alluded to, we, we make new cells our entire life. There's a paper last week showing that even elders north of 65 are making about 700 new brain cells a day. Wow. <laughs> um, so plenty. And, and here's the thing about new cells. And there's other me mechanisms of plasticity or learning and change. But the new cell mechanism, which is the most broad, if you will, long-term method, um, takes about five weeks. So cells are, cells are born in a handful of places. We're discovering new places all the time where these neural progenitor cells are born. But a couple places that we first discovered were zones uh, adjacent to the hippocampus and, and the lateral ventricles and a few other places. Now we're finding cells that wrap the entire cortex that do it and keep finding new of these neural progenitor cell sort of factories. But um, they're in little zones and they, they pump out possible cells that can become anything. And those cells, we can glial cells or blood vessels or neural cells, you know, different types of neurons, anything really. And they turn into the kind of cell they're going to be along the way to the journey to the place in the brain they need to live. So chemical signals will encourage them to travel and differentiate into the kind of cell they need to be. And mm -hmm. they, that this process takes about five weeks. And uh, half of all the cells that start this journey never, never succeed. They fail. They don't make connections with other cells, and they get resorbed back into the brain recycled. So you have enough brain cells. You have more than you need, actually. Plenty more. You know, you're 350 a day if you're, if you're an elder. Way more than that if you're, you know, young and healthy, and absurdly more than that if you're like a 5- or 10-year-old. So lots of cells. No excuse to stop learning or to forget things. No, you forget things. Forgetting is a weird thing. But other forms of plasticity and learning occur much faster. So... On the matter of, um, on the order of minutes, or sometimes seconds, we have remapping uh, of synapses, moving the cells often communicate between um, each other with a gap, a tiny little gap, and they stick parts of the cell right next to each other. There's a sending cell and a receiving cell called a presynaptic and postsynaptic that sit there, exchange chemical messages across the little gap. And those synapses are little sealed environments, actually. You don't release synapse into a circulation, like it's bloodstream. You release it into a little sealed pouch, almost, at that little synapse. So it's a little uh, information processing unit that's created to know if the cell is going to turn on or off that little, you know, uh, circuit. And the, um, the synaptic uh, sort of mapping or the moving and creation of synapses, letting go of one set of pairs, going off and finding other cells to connect to, happens in the order of minutes. So if I sent you to a piano lesson today for an hour, and we assume you don't play piano already, by the end of the day, every single hand cell on your motor cortex will have remapped and moved around. Every single cell. Wow. It's a huge amount of change in a matter of hours, in this case, for the physical tissue reconfirmation. Uh, with things like neurofeedback, you can look at the plasticity or the, um, 
the amount of change that it encourages is a nice experiment looking at uh, motor evoke potential. So if you zap the um, brain with, with a TMS, a magnetic stimulation, you'll, and you do it on the motor area, so the hand area, you'll cause the hand to jump. It's called the motor evoke potential. And it takes a certain amount of electricity or energy to cause that desynchronization of the hand area, actually this side, I guess, for this hand, um, to, uh, to cause it to desynchronize and cause the firing. And you can do a single session, one session of neurofeedback, and after that, the uh, threshold of activation of that tissue is dramatically reduced. It's got more plastic. One session, you can show measurable plasticity mm. changes with motor rogue potential. They, they fire way more easily, more of them fire, et cetera. So that stuff, that plasticity, is a really short, course, uh, uh, natural thing the brain does. And then we have moving new processes out further in the brain, which can take you know, minutes or weeks. And then we have new cells, which takes five weeks at least. So um, along throughout this process, there's several things that happen to encourage that plasticity, including delta slow wave sleep, which is required for some consolidation, moving memories from short-term uh, power hippocampal around the hippocampus into long-term distributed throughout the cortex. And we don't exactly know how these memories are distributed. We know some of the things that are required to both access them for cepheta, some alpha frequencies, as well as ways to impair them in hippocampal and medial temporal lobe damage. That's more about uh, damaging access to the uh, handles of the file cabinet, not actually the information in things like dementia when you can't recall memory, episodic memory first. It's, it's a failure of the, um, it's a failure of the uh, uh, machinery used to access the memory. The memory is distributed throughout the whole, whole brain. So um, one of the ways this memory may be encoded, we're discovering recently, scientists are discovering recently, is the pattern of uh, receptors. So neurons have little um, chemical receptors along those synapses and other parts, and they will insert them out into the membrane and pull them back to change how sensitive or the information processing in other ways. And the pattern of where receptors used to be is encoded in the pattern of cellular structure, you know, that little fine cellular matrix there against the neuron. And that appears to be one of the ways that memory forms as well. Mm. So we have former receptors, receptor density. We have synapses increasing their connections or increasing their tightness, if you will. We have new synapses. All of that on minutes and seconds and hours. New it's a huge amount of plasticity and change. So you should have no excuse for putting up with the brain uh, that's doing what you don't want it to do or stuck in some way or is injured or mm. hey, has some you know, stuck resource like anxiety or ADHD. You should really decide that you can figure out how to move beyond that because shift happens these things are changing all the time just yeah. not you know the whole system doesn't change overnight but it does change mm -hmm. so yeah it's it's so it's so yeah, crazy that you know they say that you can't teach old dog new tricks but in, in the case of humans it's actually the opposite you can actually and uh, it's it should be like also more encouraging for people who suffer from so, some sort of behavioral you know bad habits or there's some sort of anxieties mm -hmm. or mental disorders or something like that, they should take it as encouragement because it kind of shows everything is possible to change with the brain. And it's, like I said, it happens quite fast. It's simply a matter of actually going through some sort of, you know, some sort of training and uh, actually going through mm -hmm. the repetitions. Yeah, and eventually, I mean, just like, you know, if I if we went to a physical therapist for some knee rehabilitation, you strengthen the knee, at that point uh, thereafter, you're walking around strengthening the resource by using it. You're using the, the stable knee. And when it comes to executive function, control over your impulsivity or stress response, letting go of things, uh, shifting gears, 
Um, when you practice those things and they're robust from training and neurofeedback or mindfulness or any uh, uh, one of a number of other ways you can train the brain, then you end up getting more regulatory stability, but also more regulatory control. So you're stuck in modes less often. I think really that's the magic of humans mm. is we have this beautiful cognitive realm and landscape and we have incredible range within which to exist emotionally, psychologically, mentally, physically, and we do as individuals uh, have a, uh, a profoundly different sort of internal set of resources and landscapes and perspectives. So, you know, this is why I do neurofeedback as a personal trainer instead of a psychologist or a medical doctor or something. I really can't tell you what you're experiencing. I can't tell you when your needs are met for these sort of subtle experiential things like, am I self-controlled enough? Do I have enough stress, you know, managed? Am I focused enough? Am I creative enough? I can tell you if you're unusual and where the biggest bottlenecks are. I can tell you what executive function tests show based on, you know, where things might be a little bit pinched. I can't tell you what your goals are. I can't tell you. It's like an athlete. You know, the coach doesn't tell the athlete, here's what you're going to be doing in six months. The athlete says, here's what I'm going to be doing in six months. The coach says, great, let's come up with a program and get you there. And if your goals change, or you want to push harder, you let us know. Mm. That's Why really, you know, the, the model that the, sh the stuff should go into, I think, when it's a little more of a skilled, you know, biohacking realm. Mm -hmm. Why do people get stuck in these sort of behavior habits or the, the, why do they adopt uh, these uh, traits, so to say? Why do they get stuck in it? Mm. A bunch of reasons. I mean, there's, at a high level, change is expensive. It's hard. It's stressful. It's difficult. Mm. And the known is way less threatening than the unknown. When humans attach to negative experiences and memories, we're very aware of them and we work hard to avoid them. And so for many people, you know, moderate, adequate stability is better than any risk. You know, there's a low risk uh, piece of it. The other piece is that some of the habits we engage in as complex individuals are, I mean, they're, they're maladaptive. They're, they're not great coping strategies, be it sugar or television watching or whatever the, the bad thing you do, you know, whatever the, the extreme negative thing you do, if, if you overengage in it, um, it's a coping strategy. And it's, 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 it's probably successfully helps you cope. It may not be adaptive to your long-term survival or your uh, optimal performance, but it does actually relieve stress and probably helps you, you know, deal. And therefore, and it, it ends up being rewarding because of that. It gets reinforced. And then a lot of the things in modern society we have that are, are uh, appetitive, that are interesting, are really interesting. I mean, really interesting. It really, the, the uh, palliative things like food that has profound sugar, salt, and fat in, in amazing combinations that's highly produced. Uh, through the amazing media with extremely high valence information of violence and sex and danger and I mean music that's you know will 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 surround and transform you that we're experiencing. We have such an incredible wealth of rewarding things. It's easy to get over rewarded and that drives behavior because historically our, our reward system is there to help you avoid pain and maximize gain. You know which usually means uh, the drive the, the sort of the uh, hypothalamus has, has the drive. Uh, motivated behavior systems running through it, including the four F's. Uh, I tell my students, they're the feeding, fleeing, fighting, and sex. Um, <laughs> and uh, there's, those are sort of evolutionary. There's very, very deep subcortical brain structures are very, very uh, necessary in propagating genes and keeping survival going. Um, and we fall into that too easily. And we look for appetitive and rewarding things because historically, evolutionarily, those things meant more survival. Oh my God, I came across a tree full of honey. You had great carbohydrate access for like, you know, a month. That was amazing if it was the middle of winter or something or some old honeycombs or 
you know, you learned to put potatoes away, you know, in large quantities because you could live on them or whatever it was. But now it's modern humans who can go, I'm going to have starch today. I'm going to have 4,000 grams of starch and that's it for the next three days. You know, like you can do that. You can have nothing but Ben and Jerry's. We didn't adapt to having Ben and Jerry's ice cream or, you know, other forms of high fat, high sugar, high starch kind of thing all the time to the large amount of our, uh, uh, our diet, as you know. So it's really hard when these things are super rewarding and we end up sort of in a maladaptive loop of getting benefit, stress relief, mm. you know, uh, appetitive stimulate, you know, high reward value stuff. But they're also working uh, in terms of a, of a long-term consequence to create a, a modifiable, a modified behavior in the moment that is decreasing trajectories of long-term health. So it's working counter to health and wellness in the moment. And that's, I think, we need to think about uh, both gerontology and aging, as well as healthy young people biohacking, is trajectories. So you don't think about making a massive shift for now. You think about changing the long-term curve of performance. And for things that are high reward value and damaging, uh, let's say cigarettes, food that's, you know, bad reward value, high reward value and bad sugar and starch, um, uh, those sorts of things will tank trajectories. And they'll do so by repetitive behavior in the moment or the day that is extremely rewarding. So it's, it's um, that's, that's my somewhat long-winded answer for why we get stuck in this. Loop. Yeah. Yeah, it is so true that, you know, in the past, there was a lot of scarcity and people were kind of forced to adopt certain types of, you know, neurotic behaviors that are associated with, you know, oh, oh, binging on calories and, uh, and, and things like that. But I, I'm afraid, like, in the modern world, although we live in abundance of calories and safety and food and such, there's still, like, this stimulus coming from the media and, you know, the food industry trying to bait you into getting those calories. You still get the idea... Yeah that there is scarcity, so to say, that there is no, like war everywhere and you know, people are dying to different diseases. And at the same time, here's this, here's this like, very delicious cupcake in front of you. Like, you better eat it just because you know, there's, right. like, there's going to be another disaster around the corner, whereas in reality, right. it may not be like, like that. It's definitely not like that at a high level in modern society. I mean, the causes of death, as you alluded to, are changing as well. I mean, you know, if you go back a few thousand years, the cause of death, if you look at a population pyramid, a gerontological, a ger uh, aging perspective, um, at some point, even as recently as a couple hundred years ago or 50 years ago, populations had a rough pyramid such that you had more young people and fewer elders as you get up in age because the causes of death are infectious disease hmm. and childbirth and other things like that. And those affect disproportionately young people. And over time, as countries and societies in the world develops, we've a regularization of the age pyramid because we have the causes of death. There's an epidemiological explanation for this, and it's the causes of death are changing from infectious disease and childbirth to chronic disease, diabetes, cancer, the disease of aging, you know, Parkinson's, Alzheimer's. Those two things are killing us, cardiovascular stuff, more and more often, and less and less about infectious disease, childbirth, stuff, et cetera. And so the pyramid's doing this, uh, pretty profoundly, and it will look pretty regular at this point. Yeah, by you know the next few years, it will hit regularity such that many people are above 65 or below 18. And then now you're having in some countries, especially some places in Europe, you're having a, a negative population growth at the low numbers for some reason. In some countries, there's negative 10, negative 15, negative 8 population growth. So you're actually suddenly constraining the bottom of these pyramids left thin spot will travel up in it if they don't, you know, find some way. And if they, and if, if they don't, it'll probably just keep 
becoming more and more. So we're aging as a, as a culture. We're getting healthier older, which is good. But we, um, I think, have more responsibility and more opportunity at the same time to take control of those trajectories and, you know, really optimize uh, where we're going ultimately. Mm, yeah, and uh, I would imagine that neuroplasticity is also one, one of the critical parts of healthy aging, so to say, and uh, preventing cognitive decline as you get older. And you mentioned that, you know, if you're, if you're young, then you tend to have more brain cells and you're also more, more able to learn new, new things. But as you, as you get older, you tend to get stuck in the habit loop, so to say, and you don't really want to change and you start, you stop learning as well. So <laughs> that's like a bad, bad situation to be in. That's right. But you can change, which is nice. Yeah, and I mean, you know, what, what being 50 or 60 or 7 years old ne- uh, means now is a little different than it was 50 years ago. I mean, my, my parents do things like, you know, whitewater rafting and kayaking and, you know, crazy stuff at 70 that, you know, their parents were not doing at 70. And they probably will live, you know, healthy and, and have fewer diseases of aging because we now know how to control things. And theoretically, people that are younger, you know, my generation, maybe yours, I think they're a little younger, um, these, these generations will benefit broadly from accelerating technology improvements. At some point, there's, of course, social questions about access and, uh, but the technological piece of it is very, very exciting. Yeah. Um, and we're discovering now ways to roll back uh, temporal lobe issues and dementia through some of the work of uh, people like Dale Brzezetta in the MEN program and RECODE programs, looking at metabolic biomarkers for the brain basically shifting into a synapto uh, plastic, uh, plastic consuming synapses, built, breaking them down. There's some, there's some theory that amyloid beta, because these theories are uh, advanced by Brzezetta in, uh, amyloid beta is a signaling molecule that is the, it's definitely the innate immune system before we really had one, some primitive immune systems. And amyloid works to counteract uh, microbes, you know, dirty environment stuff in the environment for us if they get into the brain. So it's this really protective thing, but in a high uh, stress or high dirty environment, if you will, it looks like the brain cleaves amyloid in a direction that causes synapses to prune to fight the, the stuff in the environment versus a direction that causes the synapses to burgeon or to build up. Um, and you know, it turns out that modern life of high sugar and starch and oxidation seems to trigger this rapid degradation in medial temporal lobe structures, i.e. dementias, uh, and other memory types issues. Now, even in those cases, the brain is still plastic. You you know, once once you're severe, it may be hard to work with tissue you don't have, but it looks like from Brzezetta's work, you can reverse some of that degradation, which is amazing. I mean, I, I teach general courses and a few years ago, it was always Alzheimer's. Here's what's happening irreversible, progressive, blah, yeah, yeah. Now it's like, and here's a bunch of ways that we're discovering the mechanisms of different aspects of dementia and ways that it seems to be, uh, you know, reversed in, in some people or reversible. So we're discovering more and more the brain is completely plastic, even when severely injured or very aged or having other, you know, big problems as a young person that your brain isn't doing what you want. It can so yeah it's yeah it's it's actually if you look at the pictures of uh, alzheimer's patients or the alzheimer's brain then you can see that the beta amyloid plaques they too <laughs> wreak a lot of havoc to the brain and actually destroy the gray matter and it's really scary mm-hmm. stuff when you think about it but you know fortunately we, we know that you know the brain can you know grow back uh, some of its gray matter with different activities and such but what, what, what are there like any other activities that people you know, can do to um, keep their pl- brain plastic as well and uh, promote cognitive health? Sure. Um, I mean, mindfulness is the other big accessible one. I mean, neurofeedback is quite powerful, but not perfectly accessible because it takes a bit of technology and some time. Um, mindfulness or meditation, which are sort of interchangeable in this context, 
have really good evidence across different types of people and different types of meditation that they uh, will cause more plasticity fairly quickly. They will work towards performance, executive function, sleep, stress, those big core things. And they will offset aging. I mean, Lazar has done some work in her lab showing that the lifelong amount of meditation you've done is correlated with the amount of uh, normal cortical thinning that, you, uh, that you're spared mm-hmm. as an aged person. So there's, there's sort of a, a normal cortical thinning that happens as you hit 60s, 70s, uh, and it comes along with mostly insulin or lateral cortical regions and some dorsolateral stuff. So some decision-making, feed of processing, body awareness, maybe some feeding things, uh, likely. But it's sort of a very much a frontal or a human kind of resource set. And the amount to which you meditate lifelong is the amount to which you're spared the aging cost, the normal aging, not pathology, just typical aging cost of that uh, tissue going away. So that's pretty powerful um, literature, and that would suggest you're essentially shutting down aging by keeping plasticity high the whole time. Uh, that hasn't been well established, but that is probably what I mean. The brain adapts to what you're doing. This is one of the biggest age-related uh, features we see in, in the brain. The other big one is uh, speed of processing slows down. That would also be spared to some extent by this. So um, this is a pretty powerful one, and I don't think you need to do much. I mean, we're talking about lifelong impacts, but I think the, the most of the research showing change in weeks on performance, on brain activity sometimes, is uh, like 20 minutes a day is probably sufficient, I think, from what I can sort of extract across studies. What, what, actually, so, happens in, what actually happens in the brain while you are meditating? Great question. We don't completely know. Um, what happens in the mind, we have more sense of because of thousands of years of people writing about it. What happens in the brain, we're just starting to figure out. Um, I will say that mindfulness or meditation are executive function exercises. They are not getting to a place of stillness or bliss. That may happen from meditation or from mindfulness. You may develop spacious thoughts, more balanced mode or mood, or you know, more calm mind, zen place, whatever, from meditation. But the act of meditation is not stillness. Right. It is anchoring of your attention. Kind of like the act of uh, going to the gym is not being strong. It's you know, lifting that weight or whatever. So meditation is frustrating, annoying, hard, but easy to do, simple. So you just anchor your attention to some specific stimulus. I mean, to cobble together a, a definition, sort of bastardizing uh, John Kabat-Zinn, probably Jack Kornfield, um, med- meditation would be uh, anchoring your attention or paying attention in a specific way, on purpose, something in the present moment, uh, with curiosity, replacing inspection or observation with any sense of, you know, if you notice any judgment, let it go and bring curiosity in if you can. I find that's a really effective way of going, hmm, what's happening? And then uh, because you have a mind, it's distracted. And within a moment or two or six, you end up thinking about your knee because it hurts, your stomach grumbles, or that girl's cute, or, oh, that's this thing I have to do. And great, you've just stopped meditating. No worries. Let go of the thing and go back to the anchor, be it your sense of breath or a mantra, whatever stop meditation you're doing will have different anchors for your attention. So the rep, the act of meditation is anchoring, noticing when you've drifted, letting it go, going back to the anchor again and again and again. And you may do that a thousand times. And if you can't hold your mind to anything or steal your mind and you complain that you can never get there, great. You have the more opportunity to do those meditative reps than anybody else if you're that bad. Wonderful. You can meditate harder and more. It may not feel like it, but who cares? You'll get there. It'll build that resource. And again, shift happens, but it does take some time. So you may have a state shift. You may feel different after a few sessions of 20 minutes of meditation. You may not 10 minutes if you can't do 20. You may not feel different. 
But after five weeks of it, things will be different. Not only in your ability to sit on that cushion or that chair and meditate for 10 or 20 minutes, but in how your, your executive function resources handle time, stress, information in the moment. And so I would I also encourage you, if you're going to meditate or add a meditative practice or mindfulness practice, try doing it in the morning for 10 or 20 minutes as a, as a much better, much more effective hack, if you will, than mm-hmm. in the evening. I mean, in the evening, it can help you let go of things and you can use targeted meditations for progressive body scans and sleep onset and things. But for this resource builder, I think you should do it first thing in the day as soon as you can because it will change how you react to information and process. You will get whatever time back you put in in the morning meditating through how you process information and time later in the day. Even if it's an hour, you will get that information back. Again, to rip off uh, someone else's joke, if you don't have an hour to meditate, you really should be meditating for two hours. Yeah. Yeah, it's because you know, like, you know, something's wrong with how you process time and how you yeah. deal with stress. Yeah, like if you if you feel that you are so busy that you don't have time to meditate, then you are kind of you know out of balance and you're getting distracted by these random yeah. things that aren't actually important. And once you do take the time to sit down, then you ground yourself back again into the center, so to say, and uh, you become less reactive to the different distractions you may come across as well. And yeah, I definitely noticed mm-hmm. that if I do meditate in the morning, then everything else during the day will be more smooth as well. And I will be less, less distracted. I will have less worries and everything is, you know, just uh, <laughs> everything will, will be working properly because I kind of set the right tone right after waking up and uh, make, make sure that my mind doesn't take hold of my own thoughts. And uh, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's really wonderful. And, and it's like exercise in the morning. Your body yeah. feels different later in the day. If you exercise routinely, you aren't fatigued profoundly from exercise. Then days that you exercise, you're more warmed up, there's a little more energy, there's a long tail on the metabolic activation for several hours after you exercise. So you activate the brain in the same way and create this resource pump of executive function, uh, stable attention, stable emotions, uh, stable perception of time. And those things all end up producing uh, efficiency. And so you can use whatever resources you want without getting in your own way which is the best we can all hope for, I think, ultimately, is you know, maximizing the resources we have and then getting rid of the, the ways in which we're you know, ready, fire, aiming mm. in our executive function. You know? yeah. so. I don't know if you've heard about uh, Viktor Frankl, who was this uh, Jewish uh, Holocaust survivor. Have you heard of him? And he has this quote. I heard, yeah. He has this quote that uh, between stimulus and response, there's an empty space. Uh, in that space, you can choose your response. And in your response yeah. lies your lies your freedom and growth so it basically means that you know there's the event and there's the story that you're going to tell yourself and with meditation i feel like you can widen that space you can make it bigger and you have like more time to react to different things and you have like more cognitive power so to say so it is like one of the best biohacks in like in a sense that it helps you to become more aware of everything what's going on and uh, well that's you know like a downstream effect will improve your cognition it will improve your stress resiliency uh, will improve your productivity, mm-hmm. your you know relationships, everything else, and it's really, really one of the things that I feel like every person should take your time and take the uh, you know investment into learning it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, exactly. I mean, and these are not new techniques, right? Yeah. These are ancient techniques. And mm-hmm. when we're talking about stress resilience and not being as as driven or reactive to things, we're talking about the sort of Buddhist concept of equanimity. You know, the the not reacting to things with the story, reacting to things as they are. You know, that moment between, between stimulus and response is a moment that if you ignore it, you fill in all the stories, all the interpretations, all the context that you're carrying 
But there's context you're carrying, and then there's things that are true, and those things aren't necessarily always uh, relevant to each other. And so um, this is a, you know, pretty old stuff, but yes, I think we have the opportunity to sit in that space between stimulus and response, and if we develop a meditation practice, we end up with more inhibitory tone, more ability to pump the brakes, mm -hmm. downshift, to take more in before uh, we have that, that moment of response. And um, we may even get better at, you know, not filling those stories automatically as well over time. What kind of meditation do you do? I do a pretty basic practice and I teach a basic practice. There's a, on the Peak Brain uh, Institute website, there's a meditation practice you can check out 20 minutes long. If people, have, if that sounds scary, I have people start with half of that practice, but this is what I do. And I do a five minute uh, practice and a 15 minute practice sort of chain together. Um, the five-minute practice is what I call a single-point awareness. Classically, you would call this samatha. It's a, an absorption or a focus practice. And then I do a 15-minute practice of present-time awareness, which classically would be called vipassana or insight practice. Or um, So for me, it's five minutes of watching a narrow stimulus and 15 minutes of watching a more broad stimulus. So I set up a timer for 20 minutes that, that dings three times beginning and end and one time in the middle with a different sound using insight timer. And then um, I close my eyes and the first three bells sound and watch each stimulus until it's gone completely, if I can. And then I hold my center of attention on this sensation of breath crossing my upper lip, little philtrum tickle here. And only that, ideally, pack it down as narrowly, as tightly as possible and try to hold it, just anchor it really, really quite aggressively in some ways. And that I find is stabilizing, lets things drop away pretty quickly. And then when the five minute bell goes off, I shift to a more present time awareness where I'm watching something flow, either the breath, breath rising and falling in my body, or maybe cars coming and going uh, out the you know, door. I listen to anger to one stimulus, here it comes, let it go. But something more rhythmic and constant, or some, or, you know, some sounds. Right now it's raining here in, in sunny Southern California. It's not really sunny or gray, or sorry, not really sunny or, or, or bright, but. Um, you know, if uh, you're hearing ocean waves, anything rhythmic can, can serve the purpose of present time awareness uh, if you can learn to attach to it. And again, same thing. Oh, I'm thinking about this again. Oh, not right now. And then if people have a hard time with just those basics, um, a way to scaffold or to accelerate your ability to shift in and out of those modes and to get more control over them is to add a noting or labeling practice where you start to give a single word observation to the type of distraction. Ooh, pain. Ooh, fantasizing. Ooh, dreaming. Ooh, wishing. You know, whatever it is. Oh, that. Not right now. And go back to the anchor. If you note, if you engage your mind, your cognitive mind enough to note, then you've probably given it just enough permission to engage that it no longer wants to push back against that anchored stillness. And so it's a way of tricking yourself a little bit and categorizing. And you can kind of just give that, you don't have to use words even, but you can give this perspective of, oh, that? Not right now and label it will give you uh, some categorization. You can, and, you can, and then you can play other tricks with mindfulness like each sense. You can look at the, the feeling tone of the room on your skin or your feeling tone internally in your emotions or temperature or sound. You can play with different specific senses and anchoring to specific things if you want to in either the samatha or the vipassana, the single point or the present time awareness. And so if you get bored, that's the solution is to make it more fine-grained, I think. But basic, these are not complex techniques these are easy to learn yeah. a little frustrating to do um but if you do them for 10 or 20 minutes a day you'll have a change or you, you will have a change within a few weeks
it will be, you know, it'll help. Unless you're profoundly anxious or traumatized and, or really sleep deprived. And in those cases, if you're really profoundly anxious and traumatized, meditating drops you into your stuff. You probably shouldn't do that until you have a little control over, you know, how you feel when calm. You don't feel safe when calm. This might not be the first intervention. Maybe some HRV biofeedback, which is it's more accessible than neurofeedback, to re-regulate that vagus tone, that calmness, and that, you know, stress interrelatedness between brain, heart, and gut that puts the vagus nerve. You can train with HRV to get less uh, reactive, maybe start there. But if you can do it, um, and then if you're really sleep deprived, you'll fall asleep in meditating. That doesn't help a lot. Um, my advice there is if you can manage it, just do it standing up or, or do it slowly walking and putting each bit of your attention into the moment of what you're doing as the anchor instead of something still as the anchor. Mm. But um, otherwise, if you have a brain, you should probably be meditating or doing being mindful, doing some practice. It'll help. Yeah, I totally agree. Because like meditation kind of builds up your own uh, neurofeedback system into your body, so to say, and, and you develop this sort of intuition. But, you know, like you also mentioned that some people may simply be find it, finding it very difficult if they do suffer from some anxiety or they have like this very distracted brain or their brain is literally rewired itself to be so distracted. And so in, yeah. that, case, in that case, I would imagine that the neurofeedback can be somewhat useful. Well, the nice thing about neurofeedback is it's involuntary. You can't really control your brainwaves moment to moment. And if we're measuring what just happened in the last 100 milliseconds, one parameter, your theta, beta, or something, amplitudes, over millions of things happening, you can't really perceive that. It's kind of like listening to a giant symphony of people, and the neurofeedback is changing the tuning of one string of one player deep, deep, deep in the orchestra. And the conductor might go, yeah, sounds better. And the conductor might know what's happening, the brain, but the audience, the, the person, doesn't really know why it sounds better, even if they enjoy it more. So we're reaching into very subtle things against the landscape of human experience, and it's involuntary exercise in a lot of ways. So while the client does have some control, picking goals, you know, steering the process based on what happens, they're not doing something effortful in the chair when doing neurofeedback. And so it's really useful if you want to have it done for you. And neurofeedback is more broad than what you can just do with um, mindfulness meditation. There's some things you can do with a lot. You can do with mindfulness meditation a great deal. But the number of things you can do with neurofeedback, profoundly more uh, options. And again, involuntary. So if you need to downregulate your over-aroused brain, meditation would help that. If you were an alcoholic drinking for years and years and years, and then you weaned yourself, and now you're shaky and nervous and can't settle down and you can't, you know, go into that GABAergic state anymore, you will show on a brain map excess beta, excess beta connectivity, lots of other things. Meditation would help that if you could do it 20, 30 minutes a day. Over time, weeks and months, you will get control over those resources. But God, it'll be hard and it will suck. It'll, it'll, it'll feel like suffering. It'll feel busy and annoying and stressful. Neurofeedback can do the same thing in, you know, 10, 20 sessions of alpha-theta uh, neurofeedback involuntarily in half an hour a session, so a matter of weeks and months without you doing anything beyond showing up and reporting what's happening and setting some goals. Mm -hmm. So it has that benefit, and you can go after things that aren't under your control, like you know, language production, and you know, like it's, it, mindfulness works for OCD, for instance, and other forms of like stuck attention and stress, that, that oversection, that intersection of attention and stress. And you can see it on brain maps. It's pretty obvious. It's not a valid marker, but it's kind of obvious that someone has a ruminative or perseverative thing a beta hotspot on the anterior cingulate or the posterior cingulate because the switching system is a bit stuck or the evaluation system is a bit stuck and kind of, you know, driven. And if you see that, you know someone's experiencing some uh, ruminative perseverative things, there are mindfulness programs for dealing with that that people do. 
and they work pretty well. But, I mean, you know, the example I'll give you is that for phobias, the most effective treatment out there is desensitization therapy. If you can deal with desensitization, exposed to your phobias, it's more than 50% uh, effective in getting rid of phobias. It's profoundly effective. But 50% of people who do desensitization therapy drop out and can't complete it. So, you know, neurofeedback, everybody can do, regardless of where you are in your mind or brain, or if you're, if you're unconscious. It works on coma patients. It works on, it was discovered on cats. 50-something years ago. Cats are really bad instruction followers. You know, this is not a voluntary process. So um, the nice thing about it in our current time of tech is we get to decide what to do to our brains. We can decide to do that in lots of ways. Mindfulness practice, neurofeedback, there's more aggressive biohacks that are a little more uh, invasive that are in the brain land like TDCS, TMS, um, I feel there's other TACS um, where you're zapping the brain or you're zapping it with light. Some of the, the new light technologies are interesting in how they're changing regulatory features. And you can see, uh, I saw at one of the, one of the uh, trade meetings for neurofeedback ISNR, there was a V-light there a couple of years ago, and then someone's showing uh, QEEG changes before and after V-lights, quite obvious. So it's doing something for these, these, infra, these, these uh, light stimulation technologies. But the number of tools is proliferating. Pro proliferating. The knowledge about what these things are doing uh, at a scientific, rigorous, mechanistic level is not necessarily keeping pace. And that's true in neurofeedback. There's lots of bells and whistles and really sexy hardware with great names and sells for lots and lots of money. And it doesn't really work any better, as far as I can tell, as the more reliable, basic brain mapping and exercising different things, going after them strategically and, and systematically. So um, I think we should be excited about this time we're in and what we have access to, but we should be uh, strategic and suspicious uh, and educated consumers and try to move through a bit of a wild west of brain landscape. Um, you know, I mean, I mean you, you, of course, are, are heavily involved in this, this area of the world, and people will try lots of things, certainly, but more uh, critically, companies and providers will put lots of things out there. And some of those things are incredibly effective and work really, really well. And some of those things are essentially uh, instantiated vaporware that just aren't going to do what the thing says ever. Mm. So um, that's a little difficult in neurofeedback. Uh, so in, in, in biohacking, in neurofeedback, it's pretty straightforward. If the person's assessing your brain and talking about what is true for you and your data, then they're probably on the evidence-based side of neurofeedback. And if they have a magic uh, box that does everything, and it fixes everything, and there's no assessments needed. It works pretty much the same for everyone. Probably shouldn't, you know. The more someone's confident in their ability to do everything with the brain, the less you should believe them. You know, it's that, again, to tie back into Buddhism, if you, if you meet the Buddha on the road, kill him. You know, it's not the real, it's not the real thing. You know, mm -hmm. if, if you think you found enlightenment, you probably have been chasing something else. And in science, we know we have incremental little bits of knowledge. Nobody has the magic system. And you should be very, very cautious of words like quantum and detox in the, uh, in, in the uh, biohacking world. Neurofeedback doesn't have quite the same easily identifiable weird labeling when it's not stuff that you should do. But generally, the systems that are a bit sketchy don't, um, don't assess your brain or don't tie what they're doing really into any individualized uh, you know, thing about you. And, and brains are really quite different. Being weird is normal. Being unusual is exactly typical, you know, up to a certain point, you know, but mm -hmm. you can be a couple standard deviations away from typical and have it not be a problem. 
So the goal is not to be average. The goal is to be smart about what you want to do to your brain and make sure it makes sense, make sure you trust the sources of information, the practitioners, the providers, the whatever you're doing, the coaches, and then the proof's in the pudding. If you change how you want to, it probably was relatively successful and should be, you know, if you didn't change how you want to, believe what you're experiencing, not what the person's telling you about their magic box or their tool set or their science. Because everyone's imperfect in this stuff. Everybody's imperfect. But you're very cautious and, and very smart about moving into things that feel good and make sense and, you know, have some strategy and some uh, evidence behind them, I think. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the moment you think you got the answer, then that's the moment you're actually going to fail, so to say, or you're, you're going to you're gonna discover how ignorant you actually are <laughs> in the grand scheme yeah, of things. exactly. Uh, but yeah, exactly. and I also think, think it's uh, really fascinating times to be alive and to, to be at the center point of this, all this new research and new science that is coming out about the brain. And, uh, mm. I, think, and I also think that you are doing great work in uh, you know teaching people how to manage their own uh, mind much better as well as you know like finding new discoveries about how does this you know thing inside our head actually work uh, but uh, and, and, it's, and it's been great great talking with you but before i ask my last question uh, where can people find more about you and your work yeah so um, we're all over the web of course but peak brain institute is the website and then all social media is driven by uh, the tag peak brain la because we started off in Los Angeles. We do have offices all over the country. So we're in St. Louis now, um, Orange County, a couple offices in LA, um, San Diego. Uh, we have some services. We can do brain mapping in Sweden, in Malmö. So if you want to come down to southern Sweden and do mapping, we have services available. We're trying to open up in Copenhagen fairly soon. I don't know if that'll happen in the, this year. I think it probably will. Um, and doing a few other locations that we're thinking about worldwide. But you know, neurofeedback takes some time, but all the skilled biohackers can certainly do it to themselves with a little bit of support. So if you want to come to one of our offices and do a few days with us, we can get you set up with your own hardware and software, send you home with good brain data, good mapping and assessment and a plan, and then do weekly check-ins for you for a few months, getting you your own uh, sort of course of protocol development. And then, you, you know, you're off and running. The way we do home training for people is the year is yours, doesn't expire. We expect you to come back and get free brain maps for life in the future. So um, once you've done one map with us, we do that without charge in the future. So if you want to come to one of our centers and you know, do a sort of assessment, you'll get good data and then you can do things to your brain, uh, neurofeedback and otherwise, and check back on your brain whenever you like. But yeah, check us out online, ask questions. We have some chats on the website that our senior staff tends to monitor, not some random call center. So if you have questions, you know, hop on the website and ask us. Um, and I'm, you know, I speak at conferences here and there, usually a few a year. So, uh, you know, let us know if you have questions or want us to come talk at your conference. Mm, so. Yeah, that's great. Uh, my last question is, uh, what's this one piece of advice or a habit you wish you adopted sooner that improved your body and your mind? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, and I, I have been by necessity at points in my life. But now I know why it's happening and I know how important it is. I'm a big fan of getting up really early. So um, when I was in high school and early in college, I worked as a baker and a caterer, and I would get up at 3 a.m., 3.30, bicycle to the bakery, you know, mm. crank out loaves of uh, uh, whatever, bread and cookies and everything else for, you know, hours and hours and hours, get home at like 11 a.m., having a full day, basically. And then um, the, 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 the tone of your day when you're up very, very early and have good entrainment by early morning sunlight 
it produces a healthy brain that regulates with sleep and energy in a very, very specific way. So over the past few years, um, as I've shifted, you know, I, I had peak brain uh, uh, running for about three years, other companies before that. But post-grad school, I've really been sort of in entrepreneurial mode fully again, and um, that takes a lot of time. And, and by necessity, I've been getting up earlier, and then I've been traveling a lot back and forth to Europe, where I, you know, I met you, of course, in Stockholm, and that changes your time zone uh, a little bit when you, when you do that a couple times a year. And I have my other big office in St. Louis, the Los Angeles and St. Louis are a couple hours apart in time zone. So... I, I, you know, you, you can either uh, get strained by that or you can learn how to manage it. I learned how to manage it in such a way that I get up at about 4 a.m. Uh, or earlier, 3.34 sometimes, Los Angeles time. And I wake up now without an alarm and I get six and a half hours sleep that's incredibly restful. And over the past couple of decades, you know, as an adult, uh, dealing with life and work and lots of things, I was getting seven and a half hours of crappy sleep and not feeling rested and going to bed at like midnight and getting up at 8 a.m. or something and dragging myself through coffee and carbs and, you know, and now I'm going to bed at like, you know, 9.30, getting up at 3.34, feeling incredibly rested. And it's because of the circadian entrainment because my brain knows what time of day it is and it's, it's better at ramping up cortisol at the right time to wake me up. It's better at dampening that down uh, in the evening. It's better at having growth hormones surge a couple hours after I go to bed so that my sleep is doing the thing sleep should do for you. And um, so I wish I'd found that early on and I wish I'd found uh, uh, rigorous early morning exercise. I do a lot of Ashtanga yoga, which is a, you're getting very sweaty and hot um, many days of the week. And that also has a profound impact. Early morning exercise routinely will uh, cause strong and uh, circadian entrainment and lots of other really healthy things to happen. So, um, uh, I think the morning is uh, critical and we should try to shift ourselves into early morning sort of regulatory mode if we can. Mm. Yeah, it is so true. Yeah. And uh, it doesn't even matter how long you sleep if it's, you know, bad quality and if you're not getting like the enough of the deep sleep and such. Yeah. And that's another... Yeah, like there's research coming out recently showing that if you oversleep more than about nine hours actually starts to accumulate the total cause of death risk. Yeah. So we used to think that, you know, getting a lot of sleep wasn't a huge issue, but it actually looks like it's as risky as getting too little, uh, sort of cardiovascular and other, you know, total cause of death uh, scale. Mm. So it's, uh, good sleep is good. Bad sleep is horrible for you. Yeah. And, and if you are like uh, misaligned with the circadian rhythms, then you feel that you need more yeah. sleep. Whereas in reality, you would actually be better off by getting less if you uh, align yourself properly with the, you know, circadian, circadian rhythms and the, the light signaling. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Well, it's been great talking with you, and you know, there's so many you know fascinating topics we could even talk much more uh, further. But uh, thanks for coming to the podcast, and I'm looking forward to uh, your future work as well. Yeah, thank you, Sam. Nice to be here. Really great to talk to you. I look forward to seeing you again in person at some point soon. And uh, otherwise, you let us know if you're, of course, near one of our offices. Come by and get brain mapped, and we'll uh, we'll give you peeks under the covers face to face at some point if you want. Yeah, that'd be awesome. And uh, thanks for coming. Great. Alright, that's it for this episode of the Body, Mind and Apartment podcast. If you want to support us, then I would greatly appreciate it if you could leave us a review on iTunes and the other social media platforms. You can now order my new book, Metabolic Autophagy, that covers a lot of the same topics that we talked in here. It's a collection of certain lifestyle habits and practices that prioritize longevity as well as performance. 
To support this podcast, you can also become a Patreon and get exclusive video lectures from my biohacking bootcamp that covers circadian rhythms, intermittent fasting, autophagy, resistance training, biofeedback, and many more. But other than that, my name is Seem. Stay tuned for the next episode. Stay empowered.